It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Hi, everyone. It's Brian Kilmeade. I hope you're having a great Labor Day. I'm just honored you're including this show in your things to do list. And if you have uh, for hearing it for the first time, just know we're doing this on a daily basis. And you can get the podcast at BrianKilmeadeShow.com. You can get it just about anywhere. We're getting uh, millions of downloads, so we truly appreciate that for those people who can't listen to the show live. But we cover the breaking news like no one else. Now it's time to look back at some of the interviews I think you really want to hear. One is with Hicks and Gracie. In case you don't know, the mixed martial arts really started in Brazil. And then we had the MMA and what we see now with UFC. Well, the Gracies started it. And Hicks and Gracie was the best in this family with their legendary family uh, over in Brazil. And everybody knows them around the globe as great fighters, but not bullies. Great fighters, great jiu-jitsu experts. But Hickson was established, so they wanted to let Hoist fight. So I always knew about Hickson. Never had a chance to talk to him at great length, but he's got a book out. It's fantastic. It's already ranked among the best sellers in the country. Hickson Gracie coming up in about a half hour. But now the hottest debate in this country is about this pandemic, the variants, and how it affects your kids in schools. And I actually saw a, pro- a, a protest in my town really for the first time, substantial, March down a main road where kids, parents want to say whether the kids wear masks or not. Well, Dr. Lisa Stroman knows all about how kids have been affected by this pandemic. Some have been made it worse by horrible school officials, mayors, and superintendents who make kids either do things virtually, limit them in terms of their play, their gym, and what they have to wear in class, many of which are now getting masks, like the governor of New York, the new one, mandated in their state. How does it affect their kids? How does it affect your kids? How does it affect their behavior? Well, it's keeping them safe. At what cost is a big question. So I thought it'd be great to talk to a licensed psychologist and founder and director of the Digital Citizens Academy, Dr. Lisa Stroman, about the reality of the effects of masks and kids and scaring them to death about, about this illness that could be coming to them and taking them out which we all know in reality is an overstatement. The numbers are infinitesimal how many kids have suffered from uh, the COVID-19. But yet, it still affects them and always will. Dr. Lisa Stroman on the challenge of parents and kids. In areas with substantial and high transmission, CDC recommends fully vaccinated people wear masks in public, indoor settings to help prevent the spread of the Delta variant and protect others. Oh, my goodness. This includes schools. Unbelievable. CDC recommends that everyone in K-12 schools wear a mask indoors, including teachers, staff, students, and visitors. Inexcusable. Dr. Lisa Stroman joins us now, licensed psychologist and founder and director of Digital Citizen Academy, one of the first organizations to address the global issue of technology addiction and overuse, which is a great segment anyway. But, Dr. Stroman, what, what are the ramifications of have these kids starting in mass again? Let's first start with K through 5. So K through 5, to your point, these kids can't even get vaccinated. So that's an entirely different group that you know ahead of time that we should have known when this started that we aren't going to be able to protect this, this population because they're pediatric. 
And when you look at the numbers that the CDC themselves put out there, the rates of potential implications or deaths are much higher for even flu than they are COVID. So when you when you're putting them in mass and you're putting them back into the environment, you know you're you're typically you're going to manage like language comprehension issues. You're going to look at situations where emotional challenges and social interactions are happening. It's impacting our kids in ways that we have to stop and we have to think about what is the benefit and what is the risk in this population. You're the professional, but what I've been reading is if you tell a first a first grader needs to be reading people's faces and emotions, is the teacher happy? Are they confused? Are they are they angry? They don't know. What emotions are they showing? What are their classmates showing? Their faces covered with these adult masks. Now, for a short time, okay. But what about what from what I just said, is that a big deal? It is a big deal when we look at it. We're looking at it through a filter of a parent adult situation, right? We're looking at our kids and we're saying, this isn't right. This isn't how we learn. This isn't how humans interact. Kids, fortunately, are resilient, so they're figuring out ways to do it, but it's not ideal. And so we really do have to look at the CDC and what the science is saying and say, is this population, specifically, you asked me, up to age uh, fifth grade, where before age 12, is it better for them to actually be able to see faces? Absolutely. You know, when you're looking at whether or not this this potential vector of a child is going to be spreading in a situation where we've got teachers vaccinated and we have parents vaccinated, like that's where we have to sit down. We have to say, like, what makes sense in this situation? And to me, I think that the emotional and social issues that kids are facing uh, are, are far greater than a situation where we're going to throw them into a mask and ask them to wear it for seven hours a day. Uh, are you worried? I am. I mean, I'm a parent. I've got a 12 and a 14 year old and I'm and I work for 17 years. I've worked with a population of of young adults and I've never seen a higher rate of self-harm, of disordered eating, of suicidal ideation. Like our kids are struggling. And I think if you look at the global population, you've got the highest rates in history where we have depression, anxiety and suicidal um, potential in, in this young population. And we have to look at what changed. Dr. Stroman, all, all we hear from is we don't hear from you enough. We don't hear from people in your profession enough. We only hear from uh, medical professionals, people who look at numbers. And a lot of times we don't even see the numbers and stats and data to back up what they're saying. But we got to hear from the emotional, psychological store, uh, side more. Are you and your colleagues frustrated that no one's even seeking your advice? Uh, absolutely. I think, you know, I've been throwing out information. I mean, I'll get on a plane and come to New York and go on your show. I mean, I will be front and center having a conversation about this because the, the, the realities are I work with an online safety company that looks at the back end of what kids are kind of posting, quote unquote, secretly on their on their accounts academically. And at the end of last year, we had a 429% increase in content per student in the elementary school age. And we had a 73% of that population starting to talk about self-harm and suicidality. It is a crisis. And if we do not talk about it, we are going to be in big trouble two, three, five years from now. I know. I think you guys got to demand it. You know, it's teachers and I mean, teachers and, and parents have opinions but you guys do this for a living, and you have to see the kids. And I want you to hear what – and this is not going to make you happy, 
But this is the president of the second biggest teachers union in the country. Listen. Vaccination is the number one gold standard um, that we need to, you know, bring back our masks for schools. We're going to keep kids safe. We're going to keep our members safe. And we're going to try to open up schools. And we're going to try to move through this political battlefield. And she says she won't do anything if they tell her not to on the CDC. But we know that she's been talking to the CDC, giving their recommendations, and they cut and pasted her emails and made it their policy. So how are you supposed to trust the CDC? They basically have become political organs. I can't get this woman even to cut a to go and take questions from people, uh, let alone I mean, the last thing she did yesterday, she did it on audio. I don't even know if she means what she says and who's writing her copy. But does that does that frustrate you, knowing that we could be another year, at least start the year that way? Oh, absolutely frustrating. A, what she just said doesn't make sense. Vaccinations are the gold standard, and then she goes into, like, the math. So, like, I don't know which one she's trying to, Can't to have both. say is most yeah. important in this situation. Right. You know, and I think that what your, your point being that, We've got a bunch of different factions coming forward and saying, this is what we want to do, and this is how we're going to do it. And I say, you have to stop, and you have to look at the priority that we should have as Americans, that our children come first. And if it means the difference between going to school or having to stay at home, by all means, get them into the school, however that happens. Secondly, look at, okay, what are the implications if you're putting them in a mask, and is that going to actually give them the best chance in terms of academically moving forward. We are falling behind in America. And until we stop and we look and we say, how far are we going to let this slide happen? We're going to continue to put our kids at risk. Uh, the other thing I like to bring up is that Dr. McCarty did a study with Hopkins and they looked at all the kids that have lost their lives under 18. Almost every one of them had comorbidity, sadly, a leukemia or something, some type of lung disease or severe asthma that led to this. And it comes out proportionally statistically, which they keep telling us, go by the stats, go by the data, to 0%. So, and they have not done a thorough study of this. We have to go to Israel to get their studies, a smaller uh, focus group. I got it, smaller country, I understand it, but they have the same vaccines. Yeah, I mean, if you're talking about kids that are old enough to get vaccinated, like the 12 and over and things like that, I'm not a medical person. I'm married to one, so I have a little bit of of comparable information because of his his access. He said, you know, the the thing that they're talking about in in medical terminology is that one in 31,000 kids are actually being impacted by a vaccine. You have one in 3,000 kids a 10 times more likely chance of getting a clotting disorder if they actually get the disease, if they actually get the virus. So it's, it's much it's much better for kids and much more there's more opportunity for them to be protected. So you have to look at the science. And to your point, we shouldn't have to go to Israel to get this data or to the UK or go to all these other countries to figure out what's happening. But unfortunately, that's what we're having to do because we're not having a consistent messaging come from our own government and CDC. Dr. Stroman is with us now, licensed psychologist. We're talking about the effect on kids in school. So if you talk about seventh and eighth graders, ninth and 10th graders, you also have this idea that this addiction to our devices is detrimental. I get it. 
now what you did is you tell people to go home and, and do the remote classroom learning, or they're on their phones so much because they can't do the interaction they normally have, that adds to the isolation. So if someone listening right now uh, is worried about their kids, notice that they're a little different, what could they do besides maybe homeschool them or find another school that allows them to interact more normally? First and foremost, kids are, I, they need social interaction. They need in-person connection with others. We all do. Kids are learning how to develop who they are as adults. When we put them in devices, you literally open them up into a global portal so that they can connect with anyone in the world. And we're seeing kids that are increasing the amount that they're pushing boundaries. Nudity and sexual content has increased by 60, 76% generally overall if you look at the elementary school ages you're starting to see eight-year-olds that are chronically viewing pornography at this point it's because we don't have the ability to oversee what they're doing online get them off of the devices understand that as a parent it is hard i get it we're in a pandemic we have all of these issues ourselves as adults your job is to parent your children your job is to understand what they're doing the devices are putting them at risk in multiple ways Thanks so much, Dr. Stroman. We'll, I'll get you to New York and we could discuss this because a lot of parents are extremely concerned because they feel powerless. They can't afford private school and some unions deciding what kind of education their kid's getting. Uh, Dr. Lisa Stroman, thank you. You're welcome. Happy to be there. By the way, her Twitter handle, at uh, Dr. D-R, uh, Lisa, S-T-R-O-H-M-A-N. So that's Dr. Stroman talking about the big debate in schools Parents, masks, board of educations, governors, and presidents. But it's only heating up. It's not going away as this variant continues to stick around. For example, on another network on CBS, here's the debate between kids and masks. Listen to how heated it gets. I'm just looking at the general conversation between parents getting heated on both sides about wearing a mask. I saw a very angry mother the other day saying, they're making my child wear a medical device. We're talking about a piece of cloth, a, a cloth right. that could save your child's life and could save others' li- others' lives, including your own. Right, and that's, I, I don't understand the, the heat. Well, the argument, of course, if you have an immunocompromised child in school, yeah. and you're yeah, yeah but even if you, even if you don't believe, even if you're a parent who doesn't believe in any of that, and you don't want to have your, you think it's bad for your kid, it, it's not a huge thing. It's just a cloth yeah. mask. It's like wearing socks. It's yeah. like <laughs> my nephews. It's exactly they're young. They just put it on and. Off they go. I mean, socks, go on, back I mean, socks on your feet. I'm no, talking about the general idea of, yeah, right. you know, yeah. it's, it's a simple shirts and shoes required, yeah. throw a mask on too. It doesn't really, it's not that arduous. Right. Okay, we, we just told you it is. And number one, put a sock over your face is a little bit different to a sock over your ankle. Unbelievable that they would say that. They wouldn't put the time and effort into researching and talking to a six-year-old, an eight-year-old, a 12-year-old, a 17-year-old about what it does. Not only does it things on the surface like acne, but number two, it shuts you up. It stops a kid from seeing expression. And studies show kids aren't as susceptible, though more susceptible to the Delta variant. And it only helps 10%. 10%. So if kids are not as susceptible and you put this on them for now two years, there is a downside to it. Why they're pretending they're not, there isn't is unbelievable to me. But that means they're not going out. They're not talking to people. They're not talking to parents. And this is the whole point. 
If you are concerned, if you did your research, I want my kid to have a mask, go put the mask on. And if you really want to be cautious, do the N95 mask. I, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it personally. I wouldn't do it to a kid, let alone my kid. But number two is put your mask on your kid anyway. So your kid's safe, safe from another kid. You don't have it. You, they, don't, they haven't got uh, their vaccine yet, even though high school kids are, and that 10-year-olds probably will be able to get it by November. You make the treatment better. You keep your kids fit. You get the nutrition there. It, uh, the mass debate needs to be debated. Don't start with the emotion. You listen to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Uh, don't go anywhere. Politics, current events, and news that affects you. Brian's got a lot more to say. Stay with Brian Kilmeade. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. According to newly released emails, President Biden's dog, Major, was much more aggressive than the White House previously acknowledged. At one point in the spring, Major bit Secret Service members eight days in a row. The report said Major is, quote, not always predictable, which is a weird thing to say about a dog who just bit someone eight days in a row. Because he's biting. By the way, what does that say? I don't want to insult anybody, but if you have a really aggressive, angry dog, a lot of times it reflects what's going on in the family. Uh, so I'm not saying that. I have two mellow dogs, and I have one. I, I have a genius deaf dog, um, um, of course, Apollo, and another reflective, laid-back dog with bad knees, Rocky, two great Pyrenees. So uh, never bit anyone. Don't even want. Don't even go after other dogs. I think that's a great salute to me and my family. How uh, is personally. Rocky reflective? Because he sits back and thinks a lot. That, right. So you he, think. Yeah. Where, uh, where Apollo's always jumping around trying to initiate contact, I think Rocky's very much in his own head. He's pondering the meaning of life. Absolutely. <laughs> Which, by the way, you have to read Hicks and Gracie's book. He is uh, the most esteemed fighter in the, in the legendary Gracie family. They came up with Gracie Jiu-Jitsu based on a Japanese discipline. So Hickson goes and has these endless matches where you get in the ring and there is no end unless you're knocked out or choked out. They don't have any point systems or rounds or weight classes. He's had unbelievable success, but writes about his family, the polygamy that took place with his parents, how he adjusted to America. You will love his book, Hickson Gracie. His two-part interview is coming up next. Thanks for listening on this Labor Day to The Brian Kilmeade Show. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. How I started in jiu-jitsu, I was in Rio de Janeiro. I was going around to all the different martial arts schools and working out. Every school I went to, they kept the name Gracie Jiu-Jitsu kept popping up. I said, I've got to find out who they are. So I finally tracked them down in Rio, and I met Mr. Gracie, the father. I met Hickson Gracie, who was the world champion at that time. So I asked him if I could work out with him. I was a black belt in judo, so I thought I had some pretty good grappling skills. Anyway, I got on the ground with Hickson Gracie, and it's like I'd never had a lesson in my life. He played with me. <laughs> that is Chuck Norris, uh, probably the most famous martial artist in the world, talking about one of the best that ever was and is, Hickson Gracie uh, from the legendary Gracie family. He's got a brand-new book out uh, called Breathe, a life in flow. Uh, Hickson, welcome to the Brian Kilmeade Show. Brian, thank you, my friend. Thanks for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be with you, my brother. How yeah. are you doing? So Hickson and I, I don't know if you remember, but I did the first four UFCs with Jim Brown. 
when Horion was running yeah. the thing and, and Hoist was the champion, had to fight three times, and people would point to you. And they say, see that guy over there? Uh, he's the best in the world, but it's Hoist's time right now. And I've always wanted to watch you fight in person. I never had a chance to. But now I feel like I did after reading your book. First off, tell us, tell us everyone about your, your fighting family. Yes. Uh, I born and raised in a traditionally fine, uh, martial arts family. And uh, my uncles, my father, from the beginning of the century, they start to develop uh, our Brazilian style of jiu-jitsu, Japanese jiu-jitsu. So it was a life, a very exciting life uh, to see my, my, my parents like challenge other fighters and other styles and become a Gracie is a part of a tradition which soon, since we born, you got a gi, not a diaper. So <laughs> you become part of, <laughs> you become part of a, a traditional and you become a difference, you know, in terms of what you eat, how you see the world, how you should prepare yourself. So my life story is a very interesting process of overcoming obstacles and, and controlling emotions and, and sacrifice in training to, to become effective and, and be the best one you can be. Dropped out so of school. was a pretty Yeah. Yes. You, you dropped out of school at 13 uh, to fight and teach. And your dad said, yeah, I'll, you know, I'm not going to, yeah, I'm not going to, I'll keep you a room and board, but you're going to have to earn your own keep. And you did with your brother, Horion. When did you realize that not only could you be a great fighter, that you could be the greatest Gracie? Oh, my life was very much, I always been very competitive and I started to compete with six years old. And, uh, and all my life I was being tested on the mat. And in a very early age, I felt like I had the talent and the emotional control to, to, to excel in this sport. So I was very much in, in love with the sport, the action. But after that, I start to teach a little bit and start to understand uh, is, is much more involved because jiu-jitsu is such a perfect uh, sensorial art where it make you feel like you, you start to feel angles and levers and, and possibilities which you could, don't have otherwise because my father, Helio Grace, was a very weak person. And in order to develop the, the, the efficiency, he started to, to, to change in brute power for leverage. So once I start to capture that, that possibility, I start to also be very excited to teach and to, and to bring people to an empowerment situation. So all this combined make me feel like I was in a, in, a, in a movement to not only become a champion of the family and, and putting my commitment 100%, right. but also bring some kind of understanding for people of how much martial arts can help them in their own lives in terms of emotional control, strategy, visualization, and, and, and so on. To, because martial arts is a metaphor for life. As you become a good martial artist, you know how to live your life and seek for happiness. So the idea of conquering is, is about anything you, you're looking for, either by a car or, or a relationship or a, or a business. So the relationship martial arts has with life becomes very interesting to me in terms of 
either I'm going to be a good fighter and make my students become good fighters, or either I'm going to be a good fighter and, become, and make my students become good people. So for me, right. it's a pleasure to be involved with jiu-jitsu, no matter if it's for efficiency or for empowerment. And, and Hickson, I watched you with Joe Rogan. Obviously, uh, you know, he knows martial arts. He's a, he, he's a martial artist, and he's a commentator in UFC. He's got the best podcast in the country. Um, and you talked about breathing. The one thing I think people should listen to right now, you're not talking about making the next great champion. Whatever you're doing, this will make you better. And that became clear in this book. Uh, and I'm going to bring you to an excerpt of it. You say about winning and losing. You said, what I remember, uh, you said, because you, when you were six years old, you would die in a fight and there was no division for you. You say, because I was six, there was no division. So my dad put me in the bracket with older kids. Right now, before I was about to step into the mat to fight, he said, Hickson, if you lose this fight, I give you two gifts. If you win, I give you one. Would I realize that my dad wouldn't be upset if I lost? The pressure melted away. I lost the match, but I didn't feel bad because my dad wasn't mad. So that to you is so important for people listening right now. It is not all about winning. It's about competing, right? It's about having the courage to, to compete. Yes, and, and sometimes, you know, it's not even about the courage. It's about the, the, the capacity you have to, to surrender, you know, because sometimes you, you don't have the ability to compete or to fight. But in another aspect, if you understand better the situation, if you can evolve through, through a better understanding, you can accept, you can be spiritually using hope or patience or, or visualization. So martial arts give you the tools for you to seek for happiness. And, and, and one point in my life for me was fighting for win. At this moment in my life is winning without a fight. Because, you know, even though you don't have the physicality or the idea to, 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 to confront something, right. you always have different ways to seek for happiness and, and, and finding strategies to, to cope with the situation where you, 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 you win in a way, you know, because you, you not feel like you're losing, but you just creating a better situation for, for victory in a, in, a, in a complex way. Gotcha. Uh, you said for a young age who was drilled into you that there was no shame in losing, but there was no shit, but there was shame in quitting or not fighting. So, you know, the, the one thing people should understand, I'm talking to a guy who might be the best fighter ever uh, to, to, and he could take on any discipline and conquer it because he could see weaknesses in everybody, but he was willing to put himself on the line but every day was a struggle in your family. How big was your family? How often were you guys uh, rolling around on the mat? How often were you guys sparring as kids? Oh, it was a daily thing. You know, for us, uh, going to the mat or engage ourselves on the carpet and play, the, the, the engagement was a very natural recreational thing. It was not violent. It was not bloody. It was not, you know, scary. It was something which like two puppy lions play around and start to bite each other's neck just to feel the grips and stuff. So we, we play with each other and the older ones help the, the youngest ones to, to develop the maneuvers and the, and the ability to the inquire reflexes and ability to fight. So it's always been different because 
in other families, people say, don't do that. It's too violent. Don't play with your brother like this or, or you're going to hurt him. In our family, you just say, oh, okay, so keep him control. Let's see if he can escape and he, <laughs> come. So it was a different mentality, yeah. you know, and, and among all this, I feel like something I really like to emphasize on this book is the fact how, how breathing yeah. is a impo important for, for Let's life talk about that. Let's talk about that. What does yeah. breathing have? Everybody can benefit, whether you're an actor or whether you're in a tense situation, whether the pandemic has overwhelmed you, you have anxiety. Talk about breathing. Yes, breathing, people take for granted because once you get slapped on your butt and start to cry, you feel like you, you, you go and well to, to breathe all your whole life. But if you're not exercising, if you're not understanding the function of the breathing system and the importance of it, because you can stay seven days without food, you can stay three days without water, but five minutes without, without oxygen, you're dead. So you need to be able to hyperventilate with more efficiency. And people who don't know how to breathe technically, they breathe with the higher part of the lung and leaving the bottom part, which is the biggest, not, not functional. So working with the diaphragm breathing makes a completely difference in your system and the way you, you, you use oxygen. Because sometimes if you, pour, if you have a poor breathing system, you cannot impact your brain yep. or your heart. And the lungs has the capacity to really interfere in your emotionals, in your in your stress levels, in everything from your from your intelligent uh, intellectual aspect or emotional, but also interfere in your heartbeats and the way you, you control your heart rate. So either the stress coming from your heart or the stress coming from your brain, or tiredness, or fatigue, or or, or confusion, or lack right. of, of intuition so by breathing properly you become a different monster you know i i always been an athlete i always like to do sports and activities and i after i start learning how to breathe properly with 16 years old i become a better fighter better man better father uh a much more in control of my life and and that makes a huge you know I know I understand, and, and guys, everyone listening right now, you're a college athlete. You're about to start practice for uh, for soccer or football. Read this book; it talks about it, uh, and and it goes into detail. And if you get them online, if you want to look at the Joe po uh, Joe Rogan podcast, get the video portion because he demonstrates it. Hickson, tell everybody what the role your family had in creating UFC. I think my brother Harden make a huge. You know, when he creates the UFC, the object, the objective was just a, a confrontation of styles to prove our Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu was the most effective martial arts in confronting with others. But now it becomes like just a, 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 a huge entertainment aspect with different rule sets. And now everybody does all the martial arts. That's why mixed martial arts. So everybody knows Jiu-Jitsu, knows Taekwondo, box, wrestling, kickboxing, and they all using that for their personal abilities. So it's not more style against style, but it now becomes huge and very popular for the entire world. So do you do you feel as though that do you really wish that you got the nod over Hoist in those early days and were able to compete uh, the, the way your younger brother did, who, by the way, is a great guy? 
Yes, I was expecting to fight in the UFC, but in the end, when Royce took place and he won, I could I don't need to replace him for anything. I started to make my career in Japan and did great fights in Japan and exposed the jiu-jitsu to Japan also. So it was a great for me. It was, you know, no regrets. But UFC was a great event, and if I was fighting in the UFC in the early age, it would be good too. So right. both um, ways are great, man. Jiu-jitsu is a great martial arts and now it's spreading all over the world and I'm happy to to be a, a, a good entrepreneur for this sport do you um I know you have back problems now it's hard for you to, you know to, to compete like you used to uh, do you still teach uh, do you still give clinics is that is that what you're doing on a regular basis yeah now I have Hickson dot Academy which is a platform where I try to off- offer some content in jiu-jitsu for beginners for intermediates and high and, and advanced people and uh, I feel like this is a great way for me to communicate and empower people through the world now with this virtual scenario is getting bigger so I'm very happy to do that and eventually I'm gonna do some more like instructional videos and and books about the specifics of how to breathe properly to become more empowered to right. use breathing for you know for being an executive a police officer or exactly an gotcha. athlete or anything so yes. hickson where do we get where do we get some of these demonstrations where do we get it? go to youtube yeah go to the hickson dot academy okay which is my platform and then from that we you're going to start to get better into this universe. <laughs> Got it. And by the way, uh, go pick up his book. It's called Breathe, A Life in Flow. It's not to make you a great fighter. It's to make you a better person. You talk about your journey growing up in Brazil, which was extremely tough and challenging. And you, the one thing I walked away with that it can benefit everyone, you say, your father taught you many things. But he said he taught you you got to do a good job staying calm in bad positions. So life's going to push you through stress. And even if someone's got you in a chokehold where you want to quit, if you could stay calm in bad positions, that's one of the most valuable things you could do, whether it's a traffic accident or a challenge in a bar or whether it's your boss breathing down your neck. Final thought on that? Definitely, man. I think you become, you know, when you're able to to have a better perspective of your life emotionally, spiritually, and physically, you're able to to better have a better control and better strategies for seeking for happiness. Because in the end of the day, you know, you have to use our skills to be happy. And happy happiness is a mutant thing. You, what makes you happy today needs to be readjusted to keep you happy 10 years from now. So gotcha. this fine-tuned adjustments and, and, and ideas of right. evolutionary process has to be there. And when you have a good, clear mind, that's there to help you and, and gotcha. support you through life. And I'm going to talk to Hickson on the Jesse Waters show that you're going to see Saturday night. Hickson Gracie, thanks so much. Pick up his book, Breathe, A Life in Flow. Brian, okay. thank you very much, my brother. God bless. Take go, care. Go get him. Educating. Entertaining. Enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. When we went to... Rio, Rio, and I had been working on the script of that movie and stuff, and I was like, I was really interested in this idea that Banner is desperate for control, that he desperately needs to control his heart rate, his breathing, 
that it's a massive liability in his mind if he can't control his emotions and his adrenaline. And I was like, well, who in the world? But I'd seen the videos of him doing the um, amazing stuff with his stomach. I just was like, we have to. And, and everyone was like, who's that? I was like, Philistines. You're all Philistines. Like, I was like, <laughs> find me Hicks and Gracie and ask him if he'll do a scene with me in the movie being the guy who's training Banner to like calm himself. And he was there and he, and he did it with us. And that was Hicks and Gracie and Ed Norton talking about him and his role. So listen, even if I introduce you to him for the first time today, you know about his fighting, you know about his adjustment. In this book, he writes about being a parent and having a son that's really out of control in a, in a very aggressive way, but was still by his side uh, in most of his career. But he also talks about the organization of America. He says in Brazil, you have to register your car. Nobody cares about parking tickets. Here, he was surprised. There is some order here. Hey, Joe Biden, can we keep it that way? There's a big difference between here and other countries. You have to be accountable in America, or you used to be. Hi, everybody. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. I'm sorry we're closing out summer, but I'm glad you're doing it with us. Uh, you know the phone number. You know how to get a hold of me. And by the way, if anybody wants to email, it's probably best today, briankilmeade.com. Have a, anything to look forward to in the fall and the winter as we expect to keep COVID down, uh, keep inflation down, and find a way to keep Nancy Pelosi's spending, uh, uh, spending down. She wants to jam $3.5 trillion down our throats. we got a special hour coming your way. A little bit later, Kirk Herbstreit. He might be one of the finest broadcasters in sports. You always see him on college football. The guy can do anything. Former outstanding quarterback uh, at Michigan. Was, felt like he was underachiever until his senior year. Wrote a book about it. I thought it was excellent. We thought it would be a great idea to bring him on, especially in the advent of what's going on in us uh, in college sports today now they can really get marketing deals whether you're a field hockey player or the starting quarterback at the university of nebraska you can go get yourself a marketing deal you can represent a, a cereal box you can represent a dealership and start making some money i guess there are some parameters but to me it is a wide open field so it's kind of interesting but as you know um uh, we are going to uh, talk to a lot of special people throughout the year, and I hope you continue to join the show, one of which is Nikki Haley. Uh, the book is called All Due Respect, and she talked about her career, what led her to Trump and through Trump and why she did so well. She even got an Oval Office send-off, and she clearly wants to run for president of the United States, in my view. And think about her background. Governor of a state in the South, successful. Uh, also, she becomes a international star as a, a diplomat showing great strength and certitude in a very controversial time with Kim Jong-un and the president calling him out and people not accepting the president and the Russian investigation. She was the rock and she was tough as nails uh, to Russia, to China, to North Korea. So she wrote a book about it, kind of cues her up and tees her up for a run for the presidency in 2024 if Donald Trump doesn't run. So here's my interview with uh, Nikki Haley, former governor of South Carolina and UN, uh, U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. Uh, Nikki Haley, ambassador, governor, I don't know what title you prefer. It's Welcome. Nikki. Those were moments in time. No, that's, no, that's on your resume, and they could ride <laughs> you right to the White House. Um, well, it's great to see you. Let's talk about what we talked about in the hall right here. That's a message we can relate to. Why do you think I don't think the Democrats are capable of pivoting that way? So I think the Democrats realize they screwed up. I think that they know defunding the police is what caused the spike in crime. But I also think they're they're never going to admit it. 
they're never going to. But look, they admitted it at the voting box when they elected Eric Adams, because here's the guy that's saying, no, we don't need to defund the police. We need more troops on the streets. Whether he's right or not is a shift that shows Democrats are trying to get out of this hole they dug, but they dug it really deep. I mean, they've caused crime waves across this country in a way that's going to take truly years to recover. But we've got to do something about it now. We've got to have the backs of our blue, and we've got to make sure that they know that we're going to hold these perpetrators accountable and actually prosecute them. You're not from inside Washington, but you know what they're working on, police reform. Tim Scott leads the Republican effort, and it's gone and gone radio silent. I think they realize they lost momentum to a degree, but you can. I am doing features with them talking to so many. They are for extending the academy. They are for helping the smaller towns in rural communities that don't have the funding learn the latest with police work. They are for modernizing anything they can learn, but they're not for humiliation. Well, and I can tell you, I just um, had dinner with Tim Scott just a few days ago, and we were talking about it. And the thing is, minorities want the police in their areas. They need the police in their areas, just like everybody else, because they know that that's what stops crime. The idea that the liberal elitists are claiming we don't want the police is wrong because the people on the ground do need the police. And this is going to backfire. We're going to see it backfire in 22 when we start winning elections. Back. So you have a good sense. You know what it's like to run a state. And you also know what it's like to represent this country when the U.N. ambassador reported right to the president. So you had significant power. Plus, I, don't, I think we covered almost all your speeches live because there was so much, a lot of them, there was so much of impact happening, especially with North Korea. But as we look at what's happening in Afghanistan, and I know Republicans are split on this or if it's two-thirds they're against it. How do you feel about the timing of the pullout and the way it's being done right now? So my husband served in Afghanistan. As UN ambassador, I went to Afghanistan, um, met with President Ghani, like focused on all those things. I don't think we need to have a large presence in Afghanistan. But the idea is you have to have intelligence on the ground to know what they're doing. Go back to Syria. The main thing with Syria was... Iran and Russia couldn't do anything because we had intelligence on the ground, because we had people with eyes and ears and they knew we would go tell. The way Biden has pulled back as fast as he is without any thought whatsoever of making sure we have some kind of presence to hold others accountable, it's the reason the Taliban's taken over 85 percent of Afghanistan. This won't last six months. This won't last six months. And the problem is not what's going to be happening in Afghanistan. The problem is, is the U.S. safe? Because we no longer have eyes and ears about what those terrorists are wanting to do and if they're going to come to America. Ambassador, is the other thing this, that there's to have a base, a secure base, sophisticated base in between China, Russia and Pakistan benefited America, didn't it? It kept eyes on the ground, yeah. and that's what they were scared of. What Biden's doing is Biden doesn't know what to do with Afghanistan, so he's like, let's just pull out, and there's no thought, there's no vision, there's no strategy, and the other countries see that. And this is China's way to move in. China's going to immediately move into Afghanistan. This makes the world more more of a danger, and we're going to now not have eyes or ears on the ground at all. So what we're saying is, I think that what's underreported is since 2014, we have not been aggressively going after. We've gone to a supporting role, but our presence, along with NATO's presence, which doubled ours, by the way, and we announced that without telling NATO first. That stuff matters. You know when you got when you guys maybe were first off and maybe make an announcement, you had to go and, and mend some fences 
sometimes when the White House got ahead of the message, correct, of the State Department. Well, I mean, that's the one thing is everybody said that President Trump and the Trump administration, that we isolated ourselves, we hurt our allies. It's not true. What we did was we let our allies know what we were for and what we were against. But we didn't leave them. We said this is what we're going to do, and we talked to them about it. They may not have liked it, but we talked to them. Biden's not doing anything. Like everything he said he was going to do to mend fences is making the world more dangerous. I want you to hear what Chris Christie said and tell me if this resonates with you. Cut 17. Let's talk about the politics for a second. You know why Republicans haven't spoken? They're scared. This is typical of what's wrong with our party right now. They look at the poll numbers and they go, oh, like Donna said, the American people are with Biden. They're with, oh, maybe I won't say anything or maybe I'll whisper it so that later when the bad stuff happens, I can say, well, I didn't say that loud, but I did whisper it here in Foreign Affairs magazine, you know, in a footnote. I mean, look, we've seen this happen before. Let's be bold about it as Republicans and let's say, look, I know it's not the most popular thing to keep 3,000 or 3,500 troops back there, but let's face it, Donna, we haven't lost a combat Uh, troop in a year now in Afghanistan. We're talking about the kind of presence that that Sarah talked about. We have had significant wars over our lifetimes, and we have left America to stabilizing forces. And then uh, he was talking about Donna Brazile, who said we're for pulling out because that's what she does. Is he right? The Republicans scared? You know, I think Republicans need to remember that the way we keep us safe at home is to make sure we have eyes and ears on the ground there. That doesn't mean a large presence, but having that intelligence group troops, having those, it keeps everybody accountable and it lets us know what's going on. And it it's just leadership. And so I do think we need to have a presence there so that everybody knows we're watching them. Have you met Vladimir Putin? I have not. You have not. I met Lavrov, who works for... Did you know that cybersecurity and these cyber attacks and the ransomware attacks were so significant as they were? So, first of all, this has totally been misread. The idea that they're reporting and that Biden is supporting the fact that this isn't Russia, these are just groups that are in Russia, is wrong. Putin is smarter than that. Putin doesn't want his fingerprints on it. These groups work for Putin. He's paying them to do this. And the idea is this isn't even the big hack yet. Can we prove All that? All they're doing. Can you prove that? This is what Russia does forever. Go back and look. This is just like when they kill people. It's not Putin that kills it. He says, oh, I didn't know anything about it. Russia lies over and over again. You can never trust them. These groups are they're doing this because they're testing us and they want to know how Biden's going to respond to the hack. So the hacking of the pipeline, the hacking of our food processing, what Biden do? Nothing. He gave them a list of 16 things that said don't hack. Now you see this further hack. What's Biden doing? Nothing. He should have sanctioned them with the first one and said, "Okay, you say this isn't you, but these groups are in Russia. If you can't get control of them, you're going to suffer for it. Do you are you for having an offensive cyber attack plan where you blink their lights and can are we do you know what we're capable of you yes first of all one we are capable of everything and more but two if we went and made an example of russia and sanctioned them it would send a message to china and iran and north korea who also are responsible for hacking around the world all of these things so it's not just China or it's not just Russia we have to worry about. Every one of these countries is testing Biden. Every one of these countries is watching what he does with Russia. And the idea that he goes and has a meeting with him 
and doesn't in any way punish him for what happened is a huge mistake. You can't give Russia a pass because when you give Russia a pass, it gives the green light to China, North Korea, Iran, and any other bad actor to do whatever they want to the United States. We look totally like we just don't know what we're doing. And the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, I think, was his most egregious error, allowing Europe, these are our allies, and the hub to be in Germany and to go on the crack pipe of their natural gas when we're capable of giving it to them, maybe at an additional cost so we could subsidize it. But now Russia has control of their winters. We were, President Trump raised the concern of Nord Stream. I was dealing on the front lines against Germany saying we can't do this. The whole point of NATO is that we come, that we all come together to counter Russia. If you allow a Russian pipeline into Europe, and allow that dependency to happen. A couple of things happen. You endanger Ukraine in a big way. Because they bypass Ukraine. Absolutely. You give Russia everything they want. You make America less independent. And then think about it, Brian. Here Biden goes and gives the green light to Russia for this pipeline. But he closes down the pipeline in America. Like, the one thing Russia hated, they hated that we strengthened our military and they hated that we became energy independent. In one year, we have already just dropped all of that. Putin's got to be the happiest leader in the world right now. How could Germany stare you in the face and say we, it's okay to do the Nord Stream 2 pipeline at the same time they see Russia invade the Ukraine? They see them playing a role in the Middle East. How do they rationalize that to they you? They can't. We, I called them out multiple times in front of all the other European leaders and said, this goes against everything NATO is supposed to stand for. You can't turn around and ask us to put more money into NATO, to build our military, to do all of these things. And, oh, by the way, let's let Germany get a pass and do this. Germany's one of the strongest members of NATO from the European side. And so the idea that they're doing this is a huge mistake. And they needed to be called out on it. President Trump did call them out on it. We pushed back. We stopped the ability of them doing that. And Biden, just like that, has turned around and allowed that to go through. I know you just got into New York, but they were in Texas at CPAC over the weekend. When we come back, I'd like to take your, get your impression of what you may have heard and the revol- result of a few uh, straw polls that just came out. That's Nikki Haley actually in studio. We'll put this on YouTube later, right? You know, you're gonna be uh, you're gonna be going against Jesse Waters. Oh, fun! Uh, who we also posted in studio guest. He did quite well, so we'll put this up. Uh, Ambassador, thanks so much. Stick around. Back in a moment, Brian Kilmeade Show. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first, only on the Brian Kilmeade Show, the talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Now, this CPAC has always been kind of an odd gathering. Now it's taken over by a bunch of uh, radicals, anti-vaxxers. You know, it's a land of misfit toys. It's it's a political freak show. It's like the Star Wars bar. I mean, this is just bizarre. And the fact that they're celebrating that we're not meeting our vaccination targets is absolutely reprehensible. Uh, we all know this. I, I mean, I just can't imagine that this serious people are not showing up to this thing. I mean, look what happened. That is, uh, that is Charlie Dent. Of, uh, he was on CNN, uh, former congressman. He was a Republican. He was at the Aspen, uh, the Aspen Institute, a huge critic of the president. Uh, of former President Trump. With me right now is Ambassador Nikki Haley. I don't know how much you're able to see, 
But what did you think of CPAC in Texas? Well, you know, I think the reason he's saying those ridiculous comments is because when, you know, you get a group of people get together at CPAC, they're telling the truth. They're saying they don't want to see defund the police. They want to see more police presence. They're saying that they don't want to have choose teachers unions over kids in school. They want to see kids back in school. and They don't want them wearing masks. They're saying they don't want an open border. They want laws and they want to make sure that we build the wall. Like all of these things that we're saying, Democrats don't want to hear it because they know we're right. So 55 percent of CPAC goers uh, six months or f- about four months ago uh, were for President Trump running again. That number in a straw poll, as unofficial and unscientific as it is, 70 percent say now. The only person to get into double figures was Ron DeSantis with 21 percent. Everybody else was uh, single digits. Uh, and then in, when you pull Trump out of it, Ron DeSantis had about 60 percent of the vote. What is your take about the Republican Party and who the leader is? Well, I think that the Republican Party, you know, as much as people wanted to say and the Democrats want to say it's divided, we've never been more united than we are now. We see what has happened in such a short amount of time. I think Republicans also know elections have consequences and we're feeling the burn. But when you feel the burn, you have to do something about it. And that's why I've been out campaigning. Yesterday, I campaigned for the Republican gubernatorial candidate for New Jersey. I'm going tomorrow to campaign for the Republican gubernatorial candidate candidate in Virginia. Um, We're doing an event for Nicole Maliotakis. We're all over the country because I'll tell you, as much as everybody wants to talk about 24, if we don't win 22, 24 doesn't matter. We have to win the House. We've got to fight for the Senate. We've got to make sure we win these governor's races. Because if you look at what happened, I was a governor. The Republican governors did a remarkable job during COVID, a remarkable job because they understood the economy has to keep moving. They understood that Kids have to keep learning, and they understood the fact that if you provide people with the information on how to protect themselves, they will make good decisions. So I remember after January uh, 6, you were critical of the president. So was Kevin McCarthy was critical of the president for having that rally. And then there was a report, I think, in Axios that said you want to come down and visit, and he said no. What's your relationship like with uh, former President Trump? And president Trump is my friend. He just um, We just talked a yesterday or day before that he wanted me to come over for dinner. We weren't able to make it because our schedule's not working, but he's a friend. And look, I agree with every policy he ever did. I am proud that I served in his administration. Um, I disagreed with him on two things, how he handled Mike Pence and, you know, basically everything leading up to the Georgia races and, you know, the fact that we lost. But I am a friend, a supporter his policies were good. They made America stronger. You know, I don't agree with my husband 100 percent of the time. So the idea that, you know, I took issue with the president on that, he knows that I've always told him the truth. That's why we got along so well. I think it's bad when the president doesn't get along with William Barr and Mike Pence, because you could say that along with yourself, maybe co-MVPs of his four years. Well, you know, I think that what's important is the president never got a moment's peace. He never got an ounce of credit. It was a brutal four years to watch how hard he had to fight. And there were many of us alongside of him that were defending him, supporting him, and will continue to because we believed in what he did. And I think he knows that. I think this has just been a hard time for him. And I think that, um, you know, it's hard to see when you've built up a country to such strength to watch it just go to the wayside within just a few months. And I would have to say my opinion now, if the Republican Party isn't utilizing you, they're not going to have any success in 2022. And I look forward to your next challenge. You will not run if the president runs? I would never run against the president. I I am a loyal supporter to him. I always will be. He's a friend. I would never do it. Ambassador Nikki Haley, thanks so much. Thanks. All right. Great to see you.
radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. There'll be certain programs like Alabama or Notre Dame or Ohio State in which you have the 35th member of the football squad being marketed. And I, I think you have female athletes also, especially those that might go to the Olympics. So they'll be able to do endorsements. They'll be able to accept revenue from anything from a, a trading card wow. to uh, online appearance. So there you go. Just like that, college football has changed forever, and it's just the beginning. No one knows exactly where it goes from here. People say it's overdue or it's the beginning of the end. Kirk Herbstreet, analyst for ESPN's College Game Day, author of a brand-new book, Out of the Pocket, Football, Fatherhood, and College Game Day Saturdays. We'll take a break from war, peace, and evacuations to talk uh, football with outstanding broadcaster himself and athlete Kirk Herbstreet. Kirk, welcome. Brian, what's up, man? How you doing? Congratulations on the book. It's very personal. I, I mean, I've written books, but not about me. Uh, yeah, this is tough. Was that I've tough? Never written a book. Yeah, I mean, we you know we talk football, we talk broadcasting, we tell stories, you know, about some of my experiences with coaches and all that behind the scenes kind of stuff. But it was really, as you said, it was more of a memoir, more of a just a chance to open up. I'm a, I'm kind of a introverted guy. I don't really do that very often. And um, I, with Gene Wojciechowski, who's a colleague of mine at ESPN and, and works on game day, he's a, he's an author and writes a bunch of books and just decided that if we're going to do this, we're going to do it right. And, and uh, I went through a lot of dysfunction as a kid and a divorced parent. Uh, my parents divorced when I was eight and um, they remarried and got divorced again. I went to like eight schools in nine years. So and for a shy kid, that's a, that's a tough thing to deal with. And um, and so we go through a lot of, of kind of the trials and tribulations of just being a son to, to a dad who was a hero, and then he was gone. Not really – I mean, he wasn't completely gone, but just not around as much as I wanted him to be. And then kind of talk about full circle becoming a dad myself and questioning if I'm doing a, a good job just because I didn't really have a dad in the house to, to kind of coach me up or show me the right way. So yeah, we we touch on a bunch of stuff. Got very vulnerable, which is unusual for me. And but uh, I think the the hope is that for the reader, that some of these stories will resonate. Some of these uh, things that I've been through, maybe people can understand and, and relate to their own experiences and some of the things that they've been through. And and then there's a lot of uplifting, fun stuff too. But it's just a very candid um, memoir about about my journey. Yeah, and I want to get to more of that in just a second. Uh, college football is going to change this year. Not only do you have the – we're coming off the pandemic, and that, man, it was empty stadiums and empty college game days. Yeah. Uh, it was one of the things that really stuck with me. Number two is what's going to happen now. So I'm a freshman. I'm coming in. I think I'll choose Nebraska. They got me a few great marketing deals. Uh, I'm going to be able to represent a dealership and local commercials. Or I could go to maybe Alabama, University of Texas, University of North Carolina. Kirk, things have changed with recruiting. Scary. Scary. I mean, on one hand, like I thought you put it very well, you know, on one hand, it's it's about time. Some people say, you know, name, image, and likeness. These players should own their own name, name image, and likeness. And then on the other hand, you're, where is this leading? You know, what, um, you know, this is a team sport. And, you know, you're, you're encouraging people to focus on their individual brand. And I get it. I have, th- I have three kids that are in college, two, two of which play football. It's not like I have my head in the sand and I'm not willing to accept things change, things evolve. I understand it. I'm okay, you know, with it. I'm just worried not everybody's going to be responsible. Not everyone's – there's going to be some stories, 
where things don't go well, they're going to recalibrate this thing in a couple years, and and then I think we'll be in a better place. But right now, it's the wild, wild west. Do whatever you want. Nobody's policing it. Wow. Um, there's been some scary stories that have come up. There's been some great stories. The BYU story, I don't know if you saw that online, but basically a, a, a business came in, and they put a couple guys, uh, they brought them to the front of the room. They said, you're, you're now on scholarship. You're working hard. We got your, your, we're covering you. You're, and then they said, you know what? Every walk on in the whole room, stand up. And they stood up. They said, you're all on scholarship. We all, we, so th- those kind of stories are pretty cool. Um, but there, there's going to bound to be some stories. You worry about the IRS, tax evasion. Is everybody being responsible about, you know, what they owe? Things like that, you know, are bound to happen, I would think. So, like Alabama on a salary cap, University of Texas on a salary cap. Uh, is there going to be a small <laughs> Shippenburg state that's going to have a great benefactor that's going to be able to recruit? You know, the next Tim Tebow. I don't know. I don't. I mean, we're we're kind of all like you said. We're sitting back watching, wow. and, and we're going to learn. If you don't know, Kirk, uh, right we're now. dead. If you can't, if you're still, I mean, is there anyone that does? Well, we know? have to experience it, we, Brian. We got to experience this thing to really. We can speculate all we want, but we're we're two months into it, and and once we get a year into it, I've talked with a lot of coaches, and what you use as an example, um, you know, you're a five star recruit, you're looking at Nebraska or this school or that school, and they're all saying, well, when it comes to name, image, and likeness, we can do this. That's not what name, image, and likeness is for. It's not supposed to be used as a recruiting ploy and promises because right. it's supposed to be. Hey, this guy's a starting running back, or this guy's a, you know he's he's built up a name for himself in social media. It's supposed to be about rewarding kids for the individual brand, not you know adults using the potential of if you come here, you'll make a million dollars in name, image, and likeness. You know, there, there's that's not what it's it's being used that way, but that's not what it is intended to do. It's just kind of interesting. For example, I, I think it was Jerry Jones went to Arkansas, right? Played football. Yeah. So let's say he wants Arkansas to start be, be, becoming a, a factor again. Uh, and he knows the value right. of offensive linemen. And, you know, maybe right. they're not the sexiest. They're not going to have a great return, but they're going to get the team wins. All right, I need the two best tackles in, uh, in high school football, and I need them to go to University of Arkansas. I got some money. You know what? I think I'm going to hire you to do some marketing for, um, you know, for the Cowboys. And I'm going to get you to represent yeah. the Cowboys as the next generation of Cowboys, young, whatever it is. I can come up with something, and I'm doing it above board. Is there, is there am I breaking any rule that you know of? Not, not that I know of. No, that's why. I, that's why I'm saying this is all so new. Wow. No one's policing it, and so I think within a year or two, you're going to see some guardrails put on this. It's going to recalibrate, but right now, no. I mean, it's you know, you can't just throw them a million dollars for fun. I mean, you got to. You got to quote unquote come up with a job. You got to come up with a way that they're representing your company. But uh, yeah, I mean, what right. you're saying could happen. So, Kirk, I, I've said this to other people. You have to take me at my word. I think you're just a fantastic broadcaster. I used to do sports. The fact that you could walk off the field and be that good so quick with a lot of veterans that have been doing it forever, the confidence that you showed, you could go beyond football. I'm sure you will. So I'm anxious to read your book. I did not know the blonde-haired, blue-haired, quarter, blonde-haired, blue-haired, uh, blue-eyed quarterback would have trouble making friends and was a shy kid. That goes against the after-school specials I grew up watching. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the truth, man. I, I was an introvert. Still, still am an introvert. It's just the way I'm wired. Um, and I, I think because of my real humble beginnings – 
it's allowed me just to stay very grounded and not get caught up in the world that you and I know. You know, it's it's been very easy for me to just be one of the guys and just be on the on doing my job and um you know you get some individual accolades and people recognize your work and you know I when I do when I get that you know whether it's Emmys or whatever I I'm I'm quick to deflect you know I I don't want the individual right. attention and I think it just goes back to the the way I way I came up you know and uh, I love what I do man just like you love what you do and and I think that's there's a big story in my book about having some marketing opportunities. I was a business major at Ohio State. I could have gone into Worthington uh, Industries, which is a big company, or pharmaceutical sales, and could have gone the safe route. And I, I turned all that down and took a radio job because it sounded like a lot of fun to talk sports for a living. And I, I took that job for $12,000, knowing I, I had no idea what that would lead to. And I think that the thing which you have found, you got to find a passion, something you love exactly. to do. and not get caught up in the money and the money will come if you find something you love to do. And I try to tell these college kids when I go on these campuses about that, that message and hopefully they hear it. So uh, Kirk Herbstreit you're talking to me right now, ESPN analyst, you see him all over. He's got a brand new book out. It's called out of the pocket football fatherhood and college game day Saturdays. Kirk, a couple of things sticks out as good as you were even to get recruited to Ohio state. You got to be good to become captain in 1992. You got to be excellent. Uh, it took you three years to become a starter. You and your dad, I think, are one of the few father-sons to ever go to Ohio State and both mm-hmm. become captain. There's a lot of accolades yep. there, but you also say it was a little frustrating. How it was? It, how was it frustrating that you weren't a four-year starter? No, because I came in as a five-star can't-miss prospect and fell flat on my face. And I, I address that in the book and, and take ownership of that. I don't blame anybody or point fingers i i you know as a 51 year old it's very easy to look back and say hey you know i i, I ran the football a lot as a quarterback in high school and i went to ohio state because i was my dad was a captain there i was going to ohio state no matter what offense they ran and it just didn't fit it was not a fit and i was to a point after three years i was becoming cynical uh, you know almost like a cancer and i was i did not like who i was at that time and i wanted to quit wanted to stop playing football and my dad Instead of yelling at me and telling me to get my, you know, what together, he just he he was more of encouraging at that point in my life. He was more of, hey, you know, go give it another try, go through another spring, and I, you know, I think this thing might be changing for the better for you. And and so even though my dad wasn't around a lot when I was 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, um, you know, he he still was a guy that I looked up to and admired. And so I listened to him and and I I did the best I could. And my junior year, I ended up playing some, you know, we kind of split duties with another guy, but really my senior year is when I became a captain and, and um, was able to try to put it all together in one year. But for me, it was just, it, it wasn't the, the, the journey that I thought it, it would be and, and could be. And it, it, um, it, it was, it was something that I think when I look at it in the book, I talk about um, how, when you go through, you know, a, a situation and, and it's not always the way you envision you're going to quit because it's not going your way. And I think today we're raising a generation of kids yep. that, you know, that's what they do. You know, they, they give up. And I, I think I learned so much about myself by going through that and uh, the perseverance, the hard work, getting knocked down, getting back up, having patience. And it, it really changed me for the better for the rest of my life. Have you had your, has your sons, you have four sons, right? Yeah. Force, have your sons gone through anything similar? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, they, they have. And, you know, my, my kids, um, well, first of all, my twins were born uh, at 28 weeks, my identical twins. They were, my wife didn't know at the time she had an incompetent cervix. And so we went in for week 20 for a routine checkup and they immediately said that she was funneling and, and going into labor and we didn't know. And so she, she laid in a hospital bed for eight weeks, couldn't not get out for a bathroom or shower or anything. And she held on for eight weeks and they were still born at two pounds. I could take my ring off my finger down their foot all the way up to their hip bone. Wow. And here we are as first time parents in the NICU for eight weeks. And so they were always undersized their whole lives and small and kind of underdog stories. And um, they got all the way to the point where they, they were able to be preferred walk-ons at Clemson and they played football there. And my, my middle son, Zach is, is at Ohio state as a third generation Buckeye. So they're, they're going through plenty of adversity and, and um, I'm trying to be there as a dad, like their corner man or their cut man, just trying to prop them up and right. encourage them and love them. And I don't want to come up with answers for them. I want them to figure it out, but I do want to try to be there to support them and offer whatever advice I can to try to help them get through some tough times. Kirk Herbs here, I guess. Kirk, this, the, I saw this moment live on television when the BLM stuff was happening, the protests were happening and the George Floyd thing was taking place. And you had this reaction to the sense where you thought race relations were in America, cut 43. How do you listen to these stories and not feel pain and, and not, not want to help? You know what I mean? It's like wearing a hoodie, putting your, your hands at 10 and 2. Oh, God, I better look out because I'm, I'm, I'm wearing Nike gear. Like, what? What are we talking about? You can't relate to that if you're white, but you can listen. You can try to help. Because this is not okay. It's just not. We got to do better, man. So, number one, did you know you were going to get that emotional? You sense you were going to get that emotional? No. And what's the reaction, Ben? No, no, I didn't at all. I wouldn't. I, I, my my reaction as uh, at that time in America, being a white male, was to shut up and just listen when it came to these kind of uh, topics. And so my my point was. I had two options. I could kind of pull out the, the hybrid and keep it in the fairway and just kind of say, hey, you know, this is, un this is unfortunate, these situations. Or I talked with David Shaw, who's an African-American head coach at Stanford, and Derek Mason at the time was the head coach at Vanderbilt, and he's African-American as well. And I talked to them the day before about this subject, and it was going to come up, and I didn't really know what I should get into. And they, they talked uh, very openly about they, they hoped I would, say what I really feel. They wanted me to say what I really feel. And I debated on it because I just don't, didn't know if it was my place. Right. And usually on game day, man, I just talk. Like, I don't, I don't think about, I don't get up worked up. Like you probably don't get yeah, worked up study. over, over a subject yeah. matter. In this case, I was worked up. And so it was churning inside me. And I was, I was listening to the feature by Maria Taylor with all these, these players. And they were talking about their stories. And I have a lot of friends who are who are black and, you know, they've told me some of their stories. I was like, I'm, I'm going to play it safe. 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 And then as I started to talk, I was like, Oh my God, here I go. And then I just started to talk and I had, I didn't have an agenda. I didn't have, you know, it, the reaction has been, you know, of, of, I can't believe you, you know, what's wrong with you. Um, you're an idiot. Um, you're part of the problem. And then there's been a lot of other people who are like, man, thanks. Thanks for having empathy. You know, thanks for listening. Thanks for 
being willing to do that. And I think that's right. been the overwhelming majority of people. But I just said what was in my heart. Like I didn't, Got it. I didn't really have an agenda in any way at all. Well, Kirk, you know this. I got to go to a commercial. You live that life too. Uh, the book yeah. is the book is excellent. It's called Out of the Pocket: Football Fatherhood and College Game Day Saturdays. Uh, Kirk Curb Street. My first job was also twelve thousand dollars. So no wonder you we can go. retire so early. <laughs> great. Congratulations on the book, Kirk. Have a great season. Keep up the great work, Brian. See you, buddy. Thank you. Back in a moment. Information you want. Truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Just closing up this hour on this Labor Day. I hope you're having a great day and somewhere understanding that the summer is coming to end. I don't care where you are. Even if the weather continues to be nice, uh, it's back to the grind. And you know what? I think a lot more people welcome it because last year we weren't allowed to go to work. Even though it's raging again, the COVID-19, it's not as serious. The deaths are down, the cases are down, and we do have the vaccine out there. So got an announcement. I'm really excited in November, of, after two and a half years, the president and the freedom fighter is finally ready to go. It's Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and the battle to save America's soul. Both men's incredible lives, how they came together at the last minute, worked together through the Civil War, and uh, helped deliver the Union the victory while helping pushing the president, Frederick Douglass, to writing and uh, signing the Emancipation Proclamation. I think it's remarkable. Two remarkable Americans, self-made men. I'm going to be doing live shows, talking about this, but also winning the war on history, kind of sending off and jumping off with all my past history books. I'm going to be in Charleston, West Virginia, Sunday, November 7th. Orlando, Florida, November 21st. Uh, the next weekend, I'll be in Point of Vedra, Florida. WOKV listeners will know about that. Of course, in Orlando, WDBO. And then I'll be in Clearwater, Florida, December 4th, so the next day. Almost like a band traveling around. Go to uh, go to briankilmead.com and get tickets. There's also meet and greet opportunities, which I love, because I have a chance to talk to you guys. So rather than being rushed on a Barnes & Noble line, quick picture, you get a chance to talk. So I hope to see all of you out there. And thanks so much for making this summer so special and being with us on Labor Day. Brian Kilmeade Show. Thanks so much for being here, everyone. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. I know you have a lot of options today. The weather more than likely is nice today as you close out the summer and get ready for a school year, which is anything but typical. Nothing's going to be typical for years to come as we try to live with this Delta variant of the pandemic which uh, Dr. Fauci seems to be relishing. This hour is going to be special. And, and again, if you're listening to the show for the first time, hopefully you'll be a part of it. And if it doesn't work for your schedule when you're not off on a Labor Day like this, you can always get the podcast on BrianKillMeShow.com. You can always get it on Spotify, iTunes, and everything else. So this hour, Dr. Drew, I think one of the best guests in the history of radio on just about every topic because he's so learned, he's so interesting, he has an opinion on things, but he's a listener first and foremost, which makes him a great host. And he's with Adam Carolla. So you know this guy's got a cutting-edge sense of humor and can step aside. Dr. Drew joined us for the first time in a long time. And this hour also, we're going to be joined by Tucker Carlson, who really caught my attention in this book when Allison pointed out his dedication. Uh, He ripped his publisher for not publishing um, uh, Senator of uh, Missouri, uh, Josh Hawley. So when he didn't publish that, and Tucker Carlson thinks it's terrible for a publisher to censor He said, I'm still under contract, so I'm going to put together this book. It's called The Long Slide, 30 Years in American Journalism, and that's the first thing I brought up. Number one, Tucker's uh, Tucker's always a compelling guest, whatever you throw out when he's available and not doing Tucker Carlson Today, Tucker Carlson Tonight, or Tucker Carlson uh, Specials. 
you, you catch up with him, and it's it's when he does some press, but he always brings it along. But in reading his book and going back at some things he wrote, you see where we've been as a country. We were much more unified. Even when Bush was in and the war was at bad and when he was at 30 percent approval rating, we were less divided than we are right now. No matter who you are, whether it's Biden, whether it's Trump, uh, you got 40 percent each way. And it's that 10 percent, those independents, or 38 percent, those 10 percent either way, they'll decide who's got the better philosophy, who's got the better personality. And in reading Tucker's book, which looks back at all his years in journalism, and even includes the launch of The Daily Caller, you see how the country changed and what a great writer he is, which makes you really understand why his first 15 minutes that he writes all of it is so special, because he came up through journalism. Joining me right now, a person who knows the inside of Washington and liked it so much he left. He does not want to know, tell us exactly where he is, but I know the vicinity, and I know he's happy. He is Tucker Carlson, author of The Long Slide, 30 Years in American Journalism, just came out a couple of days ago, and we're for, for one of the first on his list. Tucker, welcome back. <laughs> you were the best introducer of guests in the world. Yeah. It's unbelievable. But you know what, Tucker? My problem is once the interview starts, I really don't know where to go. But, <laughs> You know, you know, it struck me. A couple of things struck me. Allison, uh, our fantastic producer here. Oh, she's uh, the best. I can't believe Allison. How long has she been your producer? Allison, how long have you been doing this? A very long time. Right. She uh, old enough to have three <laughs> children. Uh, it's amazing. It's amazing. You, you gotta wonder. I must be paying her so much. How much am I paying, <laughs> Allison? That's not what I heard, but okay. <laughs> so she pointed this out right away. She said, go to this page. It's your acknowledgement. I'd like to acknowledge Jonathan Karp of Simon & Schuster, whose descent from open-minded book editor to cartoonish corporate censor mirrors the decline of America itself. It's been a sad education watching it happen. And he still published the book. Well, I don't think they had a choice. You know, they felt they didn't have a choice. I mean, they... You know, if they canceled my book for writing about how they canceled somebody else's book, <laughs> I guess they calculated that would be a, a bigger PR disaster than allowing my book to be published. But trust me, they didn't want they didn't want to publish it, and I didn't want to publish with them because I so deeply disapproved. But I was under contract, and you know, for a book with Simon and Schuster, when they shut down Josh Hawley because he cast a vote that annoyed the Democratic Party. And then they, they paid off the Biden administration by sending his son, you know, millions of dollars for a book nobody read. I mean, the whole thing was so disgusting that I felt implicated in it because I was taking money from Simon and Schuster. And I and I thought, I don't know, I have a moral obligation to say something about this. So I did. Uh, that's pretty brave, as usual. Um, so so, Tucker, this is a, 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 a trip to a memory lane for you with magazine stories. It brought you back to the time and not only the time. In, in interviews that you did, in articles you wrote, but what America was going through. The, what perspective do you have on today by going back to the years in which you worked? Now you're in your 50s. You've been doing this since your 20s. What does it tell? What perspective did you gather from collecting all your past work? Well, I mean, it was just bewildering. I, I entered journalism 30 years ago this week, actually, weirdly. The Soviet Union had just collapsed like five days before. And I had, you know, I'd grown up in journalism. My dad was a journalist and I thought, you know, I, I thought it was a very honorable thing to do. So, I mean, a couple of the big changes, journalism is not an honorable profession. American journalism has collapsed. The people practicing it are 
contemptible, disgusting. I would never have dinner with them. That's a huge change. The country is completely divided in a way that it never was. Going back through these pieces, I was shocked by the number of liberals and Democratic office holders who I really liked and had – You know, I didn't agree with them. I've never been a liberal. I've never supported the Democratic Party, but I had a million friends who were liberal, and it, it didn't divide us. It wasn't the most important thing. You know, and now it is. I mean, I, I couldn't have dinner with the people I ate dinner with 20 years ago. And a lot of the pieces in the book were published in the New York Times and Esquire and GQ and places that, you know, would never publish a story by me ever now. But it didn't seem weird then. I mean, it just wasn't as partisan and polarized a country, not even close. So that was really a shock for me. A couple of things. So I, I, I have an interesting perspective here because I've been at Fox now over 20 years. And I know in the beginning, wow. I would tell people I'm on Fox, and, and even though Pop Fox was always popular, there was a lot of people that just aren't interested in the news. A lot of my friends are athletes and will follow sports, and they're like, oh, bro, how was work? You know, and just to keep passing the time. Now I can't go anywhere without everyone thinking they know everything about everything, or at the very least have exactly. an opinion. So how did, right. have you picked up that change? I mean, it was such a profound change that I had to leave the city that I lived in for 35 years, which was Washington. You know, we came to Washington when I was in high school. My dad left journalism, went to work for the Reagan administration for the federal government, was there a long time. And we lived in a very nonpartisan world. I mean, it was partisan by definition, but I mean, we lived in Georgetown, you know, right next to a left wing senator, Democratic senator who had gone weirdly to the same high school I went to. There, I, I never felt you know, like yelling at him on the street or it was just normal. You know, you you knew people who disagreed with you because it wasn't an entirely politicized country. You don't want a country where, you know, the outcome of elections determines everything. That's really scary. First of all, it gives way too much power to politicians. You know, you want a country where the big decisions have nothing to do with politics. You know, who do you marry? How do you raise your kids? What do you do for work? Where do you go to church? How's your team doing? Things like that. But if you live in a country where who you vote for defines you, you know that that is by definition an angry place. And I, I don't know how we walk back from that, but I agree with you. You get being in our fifties, it's kind of sad because you have to get up in the middle of the night to take a leak. But the upside of it is you remember what it used to be, and so you have a little bit more perspective than say our kids do. They think it was always this way. It was not always this way. That's not true couple of things. I do have a different perspective on that. Uh, if you sleep so little, you don't have to get up in the middle of the night. <laughs> so four hours. I don't, I don't find myself springing to the bathroom and then going back to bed. Once I'm up, it's into the shower. So I'll keep you up to date on how that's going. So either I'm going to get more sleep or my prostate's going to get worse. Uh, By the way, uh, your listeners, I know that they know what you're saying is true, but let me – I've seen it, so let me just verify. What you're saying is true. No one has ever gotten you, – you are like a longitudinal experiment on sleep deprivation torture, but you're still – I don't know how you're still alive. What's your secret? Right. Are you, are you disappointed? I'm just impressed. We've uh, talked about it so many times. My producer's like, you know, kill me. It's on at 11 o'clock. <laughs> like, he has to get up in three hours to host the morning show. For three hours, then do three hours of radio, and then he's like writing another book and doing documentaries. And, and one of my producers, I, I, I've said a hundred times, like, how does Kill Me do that? And one of my producers looks at me right in the face and goes, Beet juice. That stuff works, man. The super beat stuff, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> super beats. That's, you're right. They're still a sponsor. Um, Are you still drinking that stuff? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll have super beats. They also have uh, super beat shoes. 
So <laughs> that that definitely helps. <laughs> you know, I I don't need a lot. I don't need a lot of sleep. Plus, I'm always under the impression this job's going to end tomorrow. And you know oh, it, I know the feeling. right? And yeah. and you know it. Like as, as talented as you are, you've had to move jobs, in, in with all the well, skills that so you've funny. had. Yeah, it's totally true. I mean, I I grew up in La Jolla, California, and Georgetown in a you know affluent family or whatever. But I have a very much a working man's mentality about work. I don't know where it came from. Probably from my dad. But like, yeah, I always think I'm going to get fired. I always think I should work as hard as I can because like it's going to be over soon. You know, I mean, I just. I don't know where. Anyway, yes, I have the exact same attitude. I never turned that work ever. So, so in, in these stories that you're writing about other people, you move out of the way and you tell the story. And I believe, in my humble opinion, that's the reason why this book works and why you work as a host is because you're willing to let somebody else be the story. I think so many times host thinks it's about them. And you had no problem moving over and letting someone shine in a segment. And that's one thing that comes across on your show. It's like, hey, this is what I think. Now this is what they think. And you'll let them finish. Was that intentional or is that instinct? That is uh, a conscious effort not to become a talk show host. You know, they're the worst people in America. They're so insecure and boorish. They never shut up about themselves. And it just comes with the job. I mean, you've been doing it for decades. You know, after a while, you can't stop talking. You're always on transmit and never on receive. And so I just really try every morning to remind myself, shut up once in a while. Listen to other people. There are other people in the world. It's not just about you. Like right. you, you become a narcissist over time unless you really fight against it. And by the way, with age, you become a narcissist. You know, Old people only talk about themselves, and I just don't want to be that person. I'm sure I'll become that person anyway, but I really want to let other people talk just for the sake of my own soul, you know? How much, in retrospect, in putting this book together, do you appreciate the wide swath of experiences and travel you've done? It allows your opinions to feel more natural and organic because you could do it from human experience, right? You're not getting reading somebody else to find out how you feel. Well, you were in Ghana. You know, you were in Europe. You were in, Af- you know, in Iraq or, excuse me, in Pakistan. You, you travel these places. So when you come back and you react, you go, well, this is, this is what I think. And it's not where... You have to depend on another source. How much did your firsthand experience make you better on Tucker Carlson tonight, Tucker Carlson today, your Fox Nation series, everything, Tucker Carlson originals? Well, I think a lot better. I mean, I think it's really important to go see stuff. That's not why I did it, though. I didn't get into, you know, I don't, I didn't do stories or get, you know, we just got back from Hungary this week. And I, I, I really have done everything in my life purely because I want an interesting life. I didn't go into journalism to become powerful. I never thought I would make any money. I have. I'm really grateful for that. But that was certainly not what I expected at all. I didn't go in to influence policy or to, you know, if I would have run for office if I wanted that. I only went in because I wanted to see interesting stuff and at the end to have, you know, an interesting life. That's honestly what I wanted. It's what my dad had. And I, I remember as a kid, my father was such an interesting person, is such an interesting person, just seen everything, been everywhere, known everybody, seen all this drama. And I remember as a kid, I was like, oh, I want that. You know, I never thought I want to be rich. I always thought I want to be the kind of person who's got something interesting to say at dinner. And so, yeah, that's why I did it. But it's had a, you know, a hugely helpful effect right. on journalism because you need to get the you need to get the hell out of your your house once in a while, you know. Yeah, and I think that do you feel as though in a way 
uh, the success you've had has hurt that ability to do it in the climate that we're oh, in. Yeah, I mean that's the sad part. I, I mean the other, you know, I'm not a magazine writer anymore. I'm gl- I love my job. I'm so grateful for it. But I really miss just getting on a plane and going somewhere and listening to people for a week, seeing new stuff. Um, and you know, I can. The problem is. You know, the downside, everyone wants to be rich and famous. Making more money is a good thing. Not being in debt, not having to worry about your credit cards, that's a really good thing. But being famous, man, there's no upside to that at all. I've, I've never seen an upside to it. I don't know why anyone would want to be famous. It makes, you know, you don't, it doesn't make you feel good about yourself. It doesn't make you more secure. And it certainly eliminates your ability to go anywhere and to be inconspicuous and to listen. I mean, now I'm whining, and I don't mean to whine, but that is, it was my that is question. the one thing I regret about my life is I can't just go to an event and stand there and listen because I loved that. Tucker, what I'm doing is I'm willing to use my influence because I am on air, I am a talk show host, and I do want to be famous. I'm going to use that influence to get you back on Fox & Friends Weekend, make you less famous, and get you on cooking segments and do obstacle courses. Would you like that? No, I, I would, except the axe throwing is just too dangerous. <laughs> you know, on Fox & Friends Weekend, they'll literally take unsheathed axes and throw them at people. And it doesn't always work out, you know? Right. Once in a while, you have to ignore your producer when he says, turn around and throw the axe. And Pete Hegg said, didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so he tossed I don't have it. the insurance umbrella necessary for that. Sorry. <laughs> I just think about what, to have a perspective and paging through your book of what you've been through. And the next thing you know, you're, you're asked to do all these crazy things on Fox and Friends weekend. And you must be like, what's going on with me? How did I end up here? <laughs> <laughs> I've always had a high tolerance for weirdness though. So I can, I can kind of turn off whatever part of your brain is asking questions like, why am I here? Why am I doing this? And just roll with it. I mean, well, it, was, it was super fun. Yeah. And I know you love your streaming shows and the long form interviews too. So go check out his Fox nation series. It's, I cannot believe the volume of work that's there. The volume of work you did is on the long slide, 30 years in American journalism. Pick it up. You get a real perspective, especially if you're coming out of school in your 20s and you want to have an understanding of what you're about to do. Travel. Experience the world. Talk to people. Listen more. Uh, That's some of the takeaways from Tucker's new book uh, and kind kind of a cool cartoonish character. Uh, leaning on a lot of magazines on the cover. Tucker, thanks so much. Good luck tonight at 8. I appreciate it, Brian. See you, man. Go get him. Tucker Carlson, back in a moment. Educating, entertaining, enlightening. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. According to the Irish Health Authority, masking children in the classroom is not a legitimate medical precaution. It's child abuse. Masks can, quote, exacerbate anxiety and breathing difficulties. They impair, quote, the development of human communication and language skills, particularly for very young children. Now, we know from previous research, the masks can also contribute to high levels of carbon dioxide in the human body, and that's especially true in children. Masks often become breeding grounds for dangerous bacteria. That's conclusive in the studies. It's possible that masks even affect facial development. In other words, there are very serious downsides to forcing masks on children. The question is, what's the benefit of doing it? The Irish government looked into it and decided there is no benefit. Kids in Ireland are not getting sick from COVID. They are not transmitting COVID either. The Irish government refused to implement mask mandates in school. And that's something to think about. Also, looking at Israel studies, when they come out and say things like, hey, that Pfizer vaccine, only 46% in stopping the Delta variant. Oops, you never told us that. Well, 95 92% chance of dying from it, and you're not going to die from it. Hospitalization, 76%, you're not going to be hospitalized. 
But you should say there's an there's a almost a better than 50-50 chance you will if exposed you will get it. That's part of the lack of transparency. Master the fit or the or the cure all or cloth masks aren't effective or only N95 masks would work. You want a kid in an N95 mask? They already can't breathe in a cloth mask. So he's saying, let's take our chances. Give parents a chance to fight it out, uh, to decide what's better for their kids, like every other decision they make. But Joe Biden, instead of owning up to his own challenge, which is stopping this nationally, rather pick on two Republican governors, Texas and Florida. And as those numbers wane, he's going to find himself looking at Democratic governors, but not criticizing Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Do you want people calling the police on their neighbors, not emergency lines or 911? Look, this is no different than what happens if there's a party down the street and it's keeping everyone awake. What do neighbors do? They call law enforcement because it's too noisy. That, that could be a yes. Yes, yes. Call law enforcement because your neighbors aren't wearing masks. Or they're not distancing. That's what's happened in this country over the last year and a half. People have gone absolutely insane, especially in places with Democratic governors. No coincidence. Like, for example, California, uh, Illinois, and insane places like Oregon. Nuts. Like what's happening in Seattle on a daily basis, uh, what we see, and what's happening in Portland on a regular basis. That's just part of the... This compopulation of our society. Dr. Drew Pinsky makes a living by trying to make sense out of the absurd. Uh, this is a real challenge. He's a board-certified internist, addiction medicine specialist, host of the Drew Pinsky podcast, co-host of the Adam and Dr. Drew show. And he's got an upcoming book. It's called It Doesn't Have to Be Awkward, Dealing with Relationship Consent and Hard to Talk About Stuff. So I want to put the war on hold for a second, Dr. Drew. Welcome back. Brian, it's a pleasure to be here, but I've never heard my career quite expressed in that in that way. But I guess that's <laughs> what I do. <laughs> I just I, I need somebody to make sense of what's happening in this world. And we've been talking about the war and Joe Biden's absurd logic to getting out of it, where we do this thing as a superpower, essentially surrender our pride and dignity and give a inferior force a victory. But that's for another time or maybe later. For now, can we talk about mask mania? How do we get sure. so separate and, and, on this, and, before, and do they work and, first? And, and before we get into the mask thing, i got to tell you, I, I had uh, dinner last night with a friend of mine who's a Ar- Army Ranger, former Army Ranger, and seeing the debacle through his eyes was so deeply troubling. I mean, I'm, I'm really heartbroken about this whole thing. And seeing it from someone who went to West Point and who knows how to do their their job and who was there doing it for many years – it didn't have to go this way. Don't let anybody tell you it did. It didn't have to go like this. But but that is for another time. No, you, know what? Mass- no, you know what? I'm going to stick with your topic. Uh, I, I'm going to stick with that because there are so many people that work in our building that I've seen face-to-face. Johnny Jones lost both his legs in Afghanistan in particular. was just on the couch with us on Fox & Friends. We've already dealt with a suicide issue when it comes to these the war on terror uh, and those fighting the war on terror. What do you say to them now when they look around at each other and say, really? I'm missing an arm. I'm missing a leg. I have invisible wounds. Was it worth it? Yeah, that's what they're all saying, and and I just commiserate with them. And what's even more disturbing to my friend is that what he sees is that they're sending in Marines who are not trained to do the job they're doing, as witnessed the fact that 12 of them were huddled together as a perfect target for a suicide bomber 
He said, properly trained, they never would have done that. And by the way, trying to secure an airport that's surrounded by hills is a a fool's errand. Uh, He he feels we should send real uh, operatives in there to do the job they're trained to do and can't understand why that's not happening. Again, this is way outside of my area. I'm just telling you what a friend of mine who does know what he's talking about uh, made me feel last night. Well, one thing, Dr. Drew, about the American character, one thing I always found amazing about the men and women that fight is that even if if there's a body behind enemy lines, they will sacrifice theirs to get back the remains. My goodness, we just swapped remains from the Korean War with Kim Jong-un two and a half years ago. That was part of a deal. That's what it means to Americans. Now we're willing to let a thousand Americans stay in country because we're in a rush to get out? Wrap your head around that for a second. I, I know, and, and I find myself reading about some of the great thinkers around the Civil War era and just praying for somebody like that to emerge and make sense of things, as you're saying, Brian, you know, for a, for a Grant or a Lincoln or, you know, I'm uh, Frederick Douglass. I mean, wh- where are they? We need them right now. And uh, the, the extraordinary thing, boy, I didn't expect you to get me to talk about this, but I, I have faith, you know, I, I am trying to make sense of things and I'm trying to make people feel better. And one of the things I look at is how brilliant our Constitution is. And, and yes, it had some profound flaws we've had to correct. We've paid it, continue to pay a terrible price for those, those the ridiculous uh, adjustments, those ridiculous uh, sort of um, half measures that I don't know what to call them. They, they just made a huge mistake. And, but the actual documents are so flexible and so brilliant and so able to absorb all of this that I really have faith we're going to get through this. And by the way, if you're super unhappy with the Constitution, there are 50 different constitutions you can live under in this state. And uh, they're all quite different, and uh, we're seeing more of that these days, going from state to state. Uh, I'm watching my millennial children you know, invest in luggage. That seems to be one of the greatest investments you could make today. <laughs> yeah, I mean, people are, and it's a little bit separating the country, so to speak. I can't tell you many people in New York just picked up and left for Florida. And how many people in California seem to have gone to Texas? And how many people in Illinois are now having less congressmen and women because uh, they're going to those two states I mentioned in particular or going down south to North Carolina because they go, you know what? I don't like what's happening around me. I, you know, your state in particular can't get it straight. Uh, they're recalling their governor again. Even we'll if, see, even, we'll if see, you, even if Governor Newsom you, does get recalled, the fact that he had 62 percent approval will now have to hold on for his life says a lot. You can't imagine what life is like in California. You really don't. I'm out in New York right now, and I'm telling you, you don't get how bad it is. And that's why he's in trouble, because the, the, you need only walk out of your house to, to see how things are deteriorating. And for him to continue to fiddle while Rome burns, it's so astonishing that the average person just can't abide by it any longer. And so they've had it. And I do think I, I'll be surprised if he's not recalled. It's, it's only through funny business. If not, because you talk, it doesn't matter on what partisan, what side of the partisan divide you you are. Everyone in California knows how horrible life is there, and how how disgusting things have gotten. And you know, disgust is a very powerful emotion. It, it makes people change. It makes people move. And disgust is something I express on a regular basis, and I hear from other people constantly. And it brings me to the topic, and the lockdown has a lot to do with it, the obscene lockdown that you guys experienced, the hypocrisy that he was doing that, that. and let's get into that. Yeah, let's get get to that, because that dovetails into the mask thing. 
which, which is that that I, <laughs> there was so much incompetence on the part of the public health officials in Los Angeles and the government and the mayor and the governor. The incompetence was I, I want to sort of give you the the poster for the incompetence, which was that they a closed our beaches and parks, the, the exact environment where they should have in, been encouraging the population to go out of doors, breeze, fresh air, exercise, go to the beach. They closed the beaches down, but this was the, this was the sign of the incompetence that was, we'll ne- I'll never forget. When they opened them for weeks, you were allowed to stand on the beach, but you couldn't lie down a towel. If you laid down on the beach, you would be arrested or taken off the beach for putting down a towel on the beach. We knew that was not a means by which this disease could be transmitted, and that was the depth of the incompetence that was on display in California. And now you have, uh, you know, we know about this in our audience especially. You know, first off, don't wear a mask. They don't work. They give you a false sense of confidence. Then you better wear a mask. You're an evil person. Better wipe down all your surfaces. Now we find out the surfaces is not where it transferred. We'll have a mask until we get this vaccine. Well, it turns out we get the vaccine. And before that, they said you can't really spread it outside. So you should not be wearing a mask. And then the governor of Oregon comes out and says, I want a mask on everybody at all times. And in Florida, they say, I don't want my kids a mask. I want parents to make a decision. And he's looked at as evil. So there's so much going on. First off, there was just a study done that a mask only makes you 10% safer. And there's a psychological sacrifice you make by wearing a mask, especially if you're a third grader or a fifth grader or an 11th grader. Correct. There are risk rewards for all of these interventions, these so-called mitigation efforts, and none of that has been taken into account. And it has been executed by people who don't know how to make medical risk reward analyses. It's, it's a, the clinicians need to make those decisions, not bureaucrats. The extraordinary thing about this pandemic for me is that my profession froze in place. They were so fearful of getting some sort of attack in the social media or being something I didn't realize. There were so many of them were employees being judged by their employer. They froze in place and ceded their responsibility to bureaucrats. Do you think, Brian, before this pandemic, the FDA, the NIH, the NIMH, the CDC ever had anything to do with the decision making in my relationship with a patient that they were involved in that decision making? They put publications out. I'd read them and they have advice. They were not involved in our decision making. We ceded our responsibility entirely to bureaucrats during this pandemic, and they are not clinicians. They don't do risk reward analysis. They can't change direction. They're rigid, and they are simplistic in how they apply their policies. That's not the way medicine is practiced. This has been astonishing to me that my profession did this. It's just been extraordinary, and we can, we're only beginning to sort of inch back into our job, which is crazy. As far as masks go and their efficacy, yeah, the best studies show them about 10 to 20 percent effective. Now, that's not zero. And I would urge everybody to not run to one side of the boat or the other as different information comes in. Try to take a, try to take a moderate, balanced approach. Like, okay, wear some masks. Okay, all right. Wear a mask in certain situations. If I'm in an elevator, the high-risk thing, and I've done oh, All right, you want to do that? Good. Keep doing that. And, yes, vaccines, but they're not perfect, and vaccines have risk. Yeah, but I, all things being equal, I recommend it. I took it. My family takes it. I've got a vaccine passport, but I'm very worried 
that people who are not getting the vaccine are now an outgroup and they yeah. don't have their papers. It's really kind of extraordinary. I want you to hear what the president said the other day. Cut 41. Today I'm calling on more country, more companies, I should say, in the private sector to step up with vaccine requirements that will reach millions more people. If you're a business leader. So he, he wants more countries, excuse me, companies. <laughs> they, they're very similar. Uh, to start, he's calling on private companies to mandate vaccines. I'm just not. Co- I'm not saying about vaccines. I got vaccinated, but I'm not a doctor, and I'm not telling people to go get vaccinated. I will tell mm-hmm. people to do your research. I'm lucky to talk to like so many doctors. My own doctor. I got doctors in this building nonstop. I'm able to text them, get answers, and I'm saying, yeah, I have no problem with it. But people don't want to be forced to do stuff, and now the president's man- telling companies to mandate it. Are you comfortable yeah. with this? Well, no, this is such a weird – this thing has been so weird to me because during – look, during I, I was trained and my early career was in the AIDS epidemic, and that was a serious illness. That was a 100 percent fatality. When I would I, – I, as a fourth-year medical student, all day long, people would come in with their first episode, episode of pneumocystis pneumonia, and I would sit them down and say, you have six months to live, and I was never wrong. Eventually, we got treatments, and during that time, we were very concerned with how to change behavior. We couldn't get people to trust what was going on. They remember all the craziness back then. It was, HIV was created by the gallery. Yeah. The, the AZT was causing AIDS. It was crazy. And so we had to create some sort of health messaging that shaped behavior. And there was an entire discipline that developed that, that figured it out. Here's how you do it. And by the way, this is how I've conducted my entire career is using this model. You create narratives about relatable sources, somebody who's like you. Think the teen mom program I've been involved with. These are young people who get pregnant. Look what happens. So it's a narrative with consequences, a relatable source, a narrative with consequences. If you throw in some cultural elements, some humor, some music, you got it. They will learn from that. Us in a box telling people educating them about AZT and HIV transmission. We did a beautiful job of educating them intellectually, didn't change behavior at all. It wasn't until we started using narratives and consequences and showing what happens that people got it. We abandoned that entirely during this pandemic. And it's just, I can't understand it. I I wonder if it's a fear of social media or something that somehow they feel they have a new monster, a new, a new uh, sort of, a monkey on their back, so to speak, that makes the old ways of uh, shaping behavior less efficacious. I, I'm here to challenge that. It's not so. I, I've been do, doing that my entire career, and it works very well in social media as well as elsewhere. You know, it's interesting, Dr. Drew, it's, it's a bigger conversation because with, with news, remember the 2016 election, the Russians got involved and they started messing with Facebook and Trump wins. And then in 2020, all these rumors about election rigging happened on social media. What are we to believe? I don't know what's true. Where do we get our news? We're going to have the social media companies decide what's true. And then right. people looking at social media to find out what's real with this pandemic. Is it manufactured? Is the government trying to control right. us? Uh, are, we go, are they trying to kill us with this vaccine? I just saw this story on the internet. It underlined everything we were going through, and it just it, it just grew it exponentially. But bottom line is, I, I don't think that uh, we're finding out that lockdowns work. We know that yeah, lockdowns are, are, are clearly those. Are, you know, we're, we're 
we're two-thirds way into this uh, particular surge with no lockdowns, with no difference in the behavior of the virus. So come on, everybody. Right. Uh, lo- lockdowns clearly are sort of questionable, and they have massive deleterious consequences. But um, to, to your point, shoot, I lost my train of thought. You were saying something about— uh, Just the social media, no one trusting, and this just oh, underlined oh, yeah. it. So, so I, I speak to you presently from YouTube jail. Uh, where I've been placed on a couple of occasions for having conversations with highly decorated peers where we just are discussing uh, therapeutic options and what the literature looks like. Oh, twice, (laughs) twice in YouTube jail. Uh, And by the way, I told that if it happens again, they they will take me off permanently. And And by the way, I wasn't advocating for any of the things anyone was talking about. I was just discussing with people that were academics that were publishers of right. academic journals. Uh, no, uh-uh. no. Right. So that's the part that has gotten super crazy. Absolutely. Uh, and that, and it, that, again, just the fact that physicians can't speak amongst themselves in a in a any sort of media context is just astonishing. Doctor Drew, you're a pro and, radio guy. I'm up against a break, but just if I can give right, you right. some medical advice, stay away from Corolla. He's a bad influence. Uh, Dr. Drew Pinsky, you're thanks just, so much. You're just seeing that? You're ah, just thinking ah, that? I've done that for a year. Uh, pre-order his book, It Doesn't Have to Be Awkward, Dealing with Relationships, Consent, and Other Hard-to-Talk-About Stuff. He's the best. Thanks, Dr. Drew. Breaking news. Unique opinions. Hear it all on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Welcome back, everybody. Let's go to the phones. Wayne's in Florida. Hey, Wayne. Hey, Brian. How are you? Good. Let's try to get as many calls as possible. What's on your mind? Um... I just wanted to point out something that uh, I think the reason Joe Biden didn't strike down that agreement Trump had with the Taliban, he wanted to have something to fall back on in case this operation went south so he could, you know, point the finger at the former president. And he's doing just that. You know, also, I'd like to know why no one has brought up the point, why is our southern border open and we're we're under a terrorist attack? And a pandemic. Uh, Larry, listening online in Los Angeles. Larry. Yeah. Um, Larry, my, my I point. just uh, Yeah, no problem. I want to point out, uh, thank you for bringing up how inappropriate it was for uh, Joe to bring up Bo's death yesterday. But I think conservatives need to jump on how disgusting of an act that was for him to basically be trying to deflect his incompetence by bringing up the, his son's death. I mean, it's atrocious. Joe is a despicable person, and that proves I mean, it's unbelievable. He keeps on going back to it. I'm sorry for the tragedy in his life, but everybody listening to me right now can point to some very significant, horrible things that took place. It doesn't mean that your decisions weren't terrible and those 13 people didn't die unnecessarily while 18 struggle in the hospital for their lives. This is The Brian Kilmeade Show. So much appreciate that you're tuning in on this very important time in American history. Go to briankilmeade.com. Tell me what you think. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.